Welcome back, everybody, to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and Sean Karnikian. Sean Karnikian, how are you today? Not bad. Still under lockdown, uh, locked away. But the bright side is I don't have to be in the room with Brian physically. So that's great. Right. Oh, so you don't have to shower or wear <laughs> regular clothes, right? Right. And, and eating cereal all day long is acceptable. Do you like Captain Crunch or Lucky Charms? Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Next question. Milk or beer? <laughs> That's gross. Okay. Uh, so let's get started with our civil action today. Sean, where can, first of all, people find us and complain about your eating habits? They can find us at kbklawyers.com. They could complain about my eating habits uh, to my wife, with my wife. Uh, she complains too. But you can find us online at kbklawyers.com. Uh, we have other resources up there for lawyers. We publish articles all the time. We put on seminars. We put on webinars. We have... Um, podcasts, not just about cases, but we interview other plaintiff lawyers out there, people that are much smarter and more entertaining than us. So please check it out and get in touch with us if you have any feedback. We Um, also interview sometimes um, high class, uh, high profile defense lawyers to get their perspective on life. We do. So interesting stuff. Um, And what is this show about, Brian? What do we do on this show? Well, this particularly, we're going to cover four cases today. We're going to do five minutes for each case. We're going to try to keep it to that so that it's concise and to the point. And we're covering cases today which really involve important, interesting issues about civil procedure. The first involves personal jurisdiction and, and the electronic, um, the statute, penal code section, which involves um, online impersonation and electronic um, defamation. Then we're going to cover a case uh, which involves really a motion, a, a, a thinly disguised motion for summary judgment that's disguised as a motion for uh, reconsideration. Then we're going to talk about the scope of release and when, uh, under a dual employer theory, people can sue the other employer. And finally, we're going to deal with questions about the meet and confer requirement in the demerge statute and the fun and joy of being involved with the pro per litigant in the case. So let's get started. Okay. Yes, our first case is Zahia versus Superior Court of San Diego County. Uh, This is from the 4th Appellate District, obviously from San Diego County. Um, And this involves a, I'd say, a personal dispute between uh, a couple of people. Um, The plaintiff here was introduced in some type of arrangement to a, a female presumably to court her and uh, maybe ultimately marry her. And then a distant relative or family friend of the uh, female here uh, learned of this introduction and was presumably unhappy with the introduction, uh, but lived in the state of Michigan, not in California. The plaintiff lived in California. Now, the person in Michigan here uh, by the name of Nadir, Nicholas Nadir, started sending messages to the plaintiff through a social media platform using different fake accounts that he had created and and saying that you should leave the girl alone. We don't know the girl's name. It's it's just um, SM is the initials that they use. You should leave SM alone. She's not interested. And then also created uh, fake conversations where he impersonated uh, the plaintiff, Zahia, uh, where he disparages SM and disparages women and talks about what he's done to other women uh, and basically defamed, disguised this poor guy's character and potentially ruined the relationship or the arranged relationship that he was going to have with SM. Yeah, and I don't think it was I don't think it was potentially defamatory. I mean, from the way the opinion reads is that was beyond dispute that there was defamation. And California does have an online impersonation law, Penal Code Section 528.5, 
uh, and the, it, the action was brought under that and brought under, I presume, common law, defamation, slander, libel, those kinds of stat, those kind of, of rules. Um, and that really wasn't an issue here. The issue was that the, um, the, the, the person who was sued, who I think is, is, is Zahia, is that the person who was sued, right? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I have that backwards. Yes, Zahia is the person who was sued. Nadir was the plaintiff. That's correct. So Zahia is the Michigan resident, and he challenges the lawsuit out, right out of the gate on the grounds of no jurisdiction. There's no jurisdiction in California, never resided in California. He's a resident of Michigan, has no contacts with California. That's the gist of the entire case, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the court then, so the court has to do an analysis now of uh, personal jurisdiction. They start with, you know, there's general juris, uh, general personal jurisdiction and specific personal jurisdiction. This has to do with specific personal jurisdiction. And uh, right. General jurisdiction would be as he actually lived in California, that it's general jurisdiction. So it's specific jurisdiction and a court's allowed to exercise specific jurisdiction if the defendant purposely availed himself of the benefits and burdens of, of the state. The controversy arises out of defendant's contacts with the state or um, there's personal jurisdiction because it would comport with the notions of fair play and substantial justice words we all remember well from law school. Yep. And the court then does a pretty in-depth and helpful analysis if you're trying to refresh uh, your recollection about this stuff. Uh, and it goes over a number of cases, including the Calder versus Jones case, a famous Supreme Court case. And Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about Calder? Well, the most important thing about Calder is it involved an actress named Shirley Jones, who played the mother on the Partridge family uh, and also was the mother of who? David Cassidy. Right. And? Uh, and uh, Sean Patrick Cassidy. Correct. Excellent. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you're reading Wikipedia. So, <laughs> uh, but, but there, that was a libel case against a Florida publication, Florida residents, and they tried to get out of, well, went all the way to the Supreme Court, tried to get out of jurisdiction in California, and the court said, well, the newspaper had its largest circulation in California. The defendants knew that Ms. Jones would suffer injury in California, so it was easy there, and that's really the effects test, defects test with an E that the Supreme Court said. And then there's other cases that deal with intentional conduct expressly aimed or targeted in the inside the forum state. And here in this case, they find, spoiler alert, but they find personal jurisdiction, as they probably should in this case, and they go through really three reasons why there's personal jurisdiction. Yeah. And the three reasons are, first, that Zahia transmitted the harassing statements directly to a California resident, Nadir. And that type of conduct uh, can show purposeful availment to the forum's benefits to California. And electronic communications have been specifically held to be exactly the type of conduct that can be transmitted to another state, right? Yeah, yeah. And um and and that's kind of the important rule here or the important lesson here that electronic communications are included in this stuff. And then the second reason is that the reputation-based effects here again effects with an e uh occurred in California. Uh it reached a California audience. Uh the uh, plaintiff here is a California resident. His reputation is in California and it's being harmed in California. So it's having an effect um on a California audience here being viewed by a California audience. And third is that the conversation had a distinct California focus because one of the things that um uh, the defendant here 
made up or, or uh, the, the method by which he defamed the plaintiff was he said that uh, this plaintiff has, uh, has ruined uh, the reputation of many girls in San Diego specifically in the in the cultural community that this case involves. So it's specifically referenced California. So they find for those three reasons, uh, there is purposeful availment, there is specific jurisdiction, and um, the motion right. to quash was properly denied. So we'll go on our next case now, because we took more than five minutes because we were we both long-winded, right? Right. The next case is Taurus versus Design Group Faculty Solutions. This case really involves... When a motion to reconsider is nothing more than a thinly veiled new motion for summary judgment. Uh, and here, um, the basic facts of the case are pretty much not in dispute. It's that, um, the, the plaintiff in the case was injured when he was what? A subcontractor of a subcontractor of a subcontractor for some kind of repair project. Yeah, he was like, you know, three links down the chain from the general contractor. The defendant in the case is the general contractor. Uh, Not to talk about the Prevet doctrine too much, but they filed, the defendant filed a summary judgment motion arguing that the Prevet doctrine prevented them from being held liable, which basically says a general contractor is not liable for uh, something that happens to an independent contractor uh, that's hired down the chain unless there's certain requirements that are met. One of those requirements is retaining control. And in opposing the summary judgment motion here, the uh, plaintiff argued that this defendant did retain control and right. the the court agreed. Right, successful uh, uh, denial of a motion for summary judgment. And then afterwards, the defendant came back within 10 days under CCP section 1008, the motion to reconsider, and said, hey, you need to reconsider this because we now have this this testimony that our declaration that contradicts this testimony, and here it is, and we want to put it out there, and um, you need to reconsider it. So, and, um, and the court agrees, and the court says, yeah, well, we're, we're reconsidering it, and we're going to grant the summary judgment motion without giving without giving the plaintiff an opportunity to respond to it or or do anything with that evidence, the new evidence that was brought in. Right. So the plaintiffs in the case, now that they've had their case tossed on appeal, they have um, two critical arguments and both really good arguments. The first one is whether or not the defendant provided a satisfactory explanation for his failure to produce the evidence earlier, because apparently the motion has been pending for months and months and months, well beyond the 75 statutory days. Uh, and they had plenty of time. And then the second argument was basically due process and procedural, you know, violations of procedural rules. And the court said, we're not even going to reach that, that first ground about whether they could or couldn't have produced this evidence earlier. And this is, I think, very important. They say, you can't use 1008, the motion to reconsider, to basically file a new summary judgment motion, what you're effectively doing here. And, and the reason for that, Sean, is first, they say that um, there's, there's a right to due process. In other words, a right to basically have the process or procedure followed in a constitutional sense. But then they go on, I think, a, a, an, an equally important argument. Right, which is uh, providing enough notice, I think, is what you're referencing. Uh, 74, the uh, summary judgment statute, 473C or 437C, specifically provides 75 days notice and a separate statement of material facts. And neither of those were provided here. And the plaintiff didn't have the statutorily required time to oppose what's effectively another summary judgment motion, which seeks to dispose of the entire case. 
So right. that really implicates the due process right. Someone's being of de- right. deprived of their right here. Well, an important right it is because for those of you that have been practicing long enough to remember what it used to be like when there was a much shorter period of time to oppose a motion for summary judgment, it was a nightmare. And it was hard-fought. Consumer attorneys in California worked very hard to get the law changed for the 75 days. The 75 days is incredibly important because if you practice in federal court, you know that they can jam a summary judgment motion down your throat. You have to respond to it sometimes within a couple of weeks. And, and California got 75 days. So 75 days is a right which is protected by this case. So great case. Let's go on to the next one, Sean. Yeah, next case is Grand, Grande versus Eisenhower Medical Center and Flex Care. This is out of the Fourth District Court of Appeal, uh, comes out of the Riverside Superior Court. Um, and this is a two, it involves two class actions. So um, the plaintiff here, Grande, brought a class action against a company called Flex Care. FlexCare is a staffing agency that staffs a lot of the medical staff and nurses for the Eisenhower Medical Center, which is not just one hospital. It's the largest medical provider out in the desert. They have multiple facilities, employ hundreds, probably thousands of people. Um, So the plaintiff brought a class action against FlexCare for meal and rest break violations, different labor code violations. That case, which was brought in Santa Barbara, ultimately settled for $750,000. Right. And one of the reasons it settled for, it wasn't just against FlexCare for for temporary nurses who had been put at Eisenhower. It was for FlexCare's sort of whole business model, all different facilities that it put people in and it was. A, it seems, as it's reading the opinion, that it was a relatively small amount of money. And one of the things the court pointed out was that the settlement was based specifically. And I think it said it said it in the agreement that um, that FlexCare had, you know, some questions about their financial viability, right? Yeah, that that's if if it sounds like pennies, you know, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. The reason is because they weren't very financially viable. Anything larger or a larger judgment may have bankrupted them, and then the class wouldn't get anything. So anyway, it settles for seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. The plaintiff here gets a twenty thousand dollar incentive bonus and signs a release of all claims. And there's a judgment entered releasing all claims against FlexCare. Uh, about a year later, Grande, the same exact plaintiff, brought this class action against Eisenhower Medical Center separately, um, m- making the same exact claims. Failure to provide meal and rest breaks, failure to pay waiting time penalties, failure to provide accurate itemized wage statements, um, and brings the same exact claims. Eisenhower turns around and seeks indemnity from the staffing agency FlexCare and says, these are your employees, um, you're responsible here, we have a contract. And that obviously upsets FlexCare, who comes in and tries to intervene in this case and argue that these claims are all released, you can't have the same class action again, um, and this case shouldn't be able to proceed. One of the important parts about the settlement agreement in the underlying case in Santa Barbara was that Eisenhower wasn't specifically named as a release parties, but they did name their affiliates and officers. And then they have that sort of boilerplate language that everybody has about present, former subsidiaries, officers, successors, blah, blah, blah. But nowhere did they specifically say Eisenhower. So when the case reached the trial court and Eisenhower tried to get out, the court ruled that they're not a release party under the settlement agreement, right? 
Yeah, there, so there's there's really two reasons here why the Court of Appeal agrees that that they're not a release party. One of them is that there's no there's no privity uh, between Eisenhower and uh, FlexCare here. They look at a case called DKN. Um, uh, it's kind of a, a slightly older case that determines privity in these situations and says that the DKN, the fact that the two parties are not joined. That old. In- uh, not that old. It's only 2015. Oh, okay. Okay. Not that old. It's a California Supreme Court case. And uh, the the important part of that case is sort of the notion about the joint and several obligations and um, particularly uh, these joint employer situations. So a joint employer situation is where these staffing agencies will actually put an employee in a place of business where they work as if they were that employer's um, employee. Yeah, and and the court says that just because um, they're joint and several, uh, they're joint jointly and severally liable doesn't mean that they're in privity for purposes of issue or claim preclusion. And then they also talk about a case called Serrano, a 2018 case that says that joint employers specifically are not vicariously liable for each other's labor code violations, but rather liable for their own conduct. So that's a very important case here, and I think this is a really good case in general. So. Um, it, they find that ultimately there's no privity here. And in fact, the reasoning behind that is, look, FlexCare, they say FlexCare could have gone to trial in the earlier class action and pointed the finger at uh, Eisenhower and said, we're not liable here. We're not liable. They don't have the same interests. In fact, quite literally, they're fighting with each other in this case, FlexCare and Eisenhower. So they don't have aligned interests. Uh, res judicata, issue preclusion, claim preclusion does not apply here. Then the, the next thing issue- about using these these um, staffing agencies or these joint employer kind of situations is, is, I don't know, it's very suspect. And it seems like a lot of employers were using this with the idea of trying to insulate themselves from these very kinds of cases. And I think it's fairly clear at this point that putting the procedure of this case aside, courts just aren't going to allow that. Oh, oh but, yeah. But, in fact, in, in, in this opinion, even though this isn't an issue here, a direct issue here, they do make a comment about how, sure, the, the contract between FlexCare and Eisenhower specifically says that these employees are employees of the staffing agency. They're not our employees. But then the court says, well, that language doesn't matter. What really matters in joint employer situations is control. Who are dual employer situations? Who has control? And they say um, the staffing agency had some control, and so did Eisenhower. Eisenhower got to fire people. They got to give them tests. They got to right. train them. So they say they're both employers. doesn't matter what they're what – they're, A lot uh, of times, too, these relationships or these arrangements are kind of what you call temp to own. I mean, it may be that somebody starts out as a temp employee, and it's a way of, of previewing them for the employer, and that's what they're doing. But we're getting off track here. Let's get back to this case and talk about the um, second DCA's decision in Castillo versus Glen Eyre, which came out about two years ago. Yeah, Castillo um, said that uh, and this court declines to fi- follow Castillo. Castillo said that in these situations, when you have a staffing agency and an employer, um, they can you can't have a class action for the same thing against both of them. Uh, you got to pick one, or you can't have one class action against one and then go fall, go um, file one against the other one. So basically, yeah, under Castillo, directly in opposite, do this directly yeah. in opposite. Of this yeah, case. yeah. And so one of the things that the court said was we're specifically declining to follow the Castillo decision. And then there's a dissent. I mean, we didn't mention that at the beginning, but this is a 2-1 decision on the fourth DCA, not the second DCA. And the the dissenting justice, Justice Ramirez, says, I follow Castillo. 
Uh, I follow it because it, of stare decisis. Um, I follow it because I think the rules are clear and I think that it lays out clear groundwork for somebody. Um, and then he takes uh, issue with the um, them trying to draw a connection between the California Supreme Court case, DKN Holdings, and says, I don't think, I think they're reading it different. I don't think that's the way you'd read it. So what would you say, Sean, is the future of the Grande versus Eisenhower medical case? This case is on its way up to San Francisco for a trip to the California Supreme Court, probably. Very likely. Probably. I mean, there's certainly a split now of authority, and, and the California Supreme Court likes to take cases that involve employment issues, wage and hour issues. This is an important issue, I think, in California, is this this sort of notion and doctrine. So I, I agree, Sean. I think it's, it's destined to determine there. So let's finish out our session today with a little trip to Pro Per Land. Have you ever been to Pro Per Land, Sean? I have not been to, well, I've, I think I've dealt with pro-per litigants before, but I've never been a pro-per plaintiff myself. Right, I wouldn't, because I wouldn't it, make a good lawyer. Because uh, as the saying goes, that one who represents him or herself has a fool for a lawyer. And this case is a perfect example of that. It's out of the second DCA. Um, in this case, you had someone named Dumas. This case is Dumas versus LA County Board of Supervisors, Dumas. Uh, was representing himself in some and, and suing the sheriff's department and others for apparently some kind of violation of civil rights. So right. we don't know if the case had merit or not, and we may never know. Yeah. So um, he he sues the board of supervisors, sheriff's department. They demur on a number of grounds. Some of the grounds for the demur are sustained by the trial court judge, and then the defendant tries uh, to take discovery, and he doesn't show up, doesn't respond. Um, they file a motion to compel his deposition. He doesn't show up to the hearing on that, and then which is bad, right? No, yeah, that's bad. Uh, his explanation is he had another trial, I think, or something. I presume it's a criminal hearing, but but anyway. Um, and then he doesn't show up for his deposition again. So the court sets an order to show cause as to why the case shouldn't be dismissed for his failure to comply with the court's order and show up for his deposition. And but you showed up then, right? Um, I, I think so, but but the nope, case nope, he, he didn't, didn't show, show up then either. Then. He didn't nope. show up then either. So the case was dismissed uh, without prejudice. And case he, gets and he, completely yeah. thrown out. Yeah. And then he appeals. He argues on appeal a number of things. He argues that the demur should not have been granted, not because of some issue on the merits, but because the defendant here failed to meet and confer with him as required so, now under the CCP. Um, so let's focus on that one first. So, so yeah. that one, as we all know, uh, the section CCP 430.41 requires a meet and confer before filing a demur. And the issue he said here was, the county made insufficient efforts to try to um, to try to meet and confer, right? Yeah, and uh, meanwhile, the county attached a declaration to their demur that says we tried to reach out to him to meet and confer about this, and he didn't respond, which I think you know meets that burden. I, I think it meets right. the requirement. Um, but but the court didn't stop there. They went on to say even if you don't meet and confer, that's not grounds for overruling a demur. But courts do have. Um, other methods or mechanisms, such as um, taking the, the 
motion off calendar requiring. I think the statute first. specifically says that. The statute says that failing to meet and confer is not a grounds for denying the demur, but the courts inherently, and I think per statute, have the ability to um, make the parties meet and confer about the demur if, if the judge finds that it'll be fruitful. So, you know, that's not totally lost. There's some, there's some teeth there to the statute. Um, and the next issue on appeal is whether or not, whether or not the judge failed to, uh, or, or whether the judge erred by striking his uh, challenge to the judge, the uh, statement of disqualification under 170.3. And tell us about that, Brian. What's a 170.3? Well, that's where you're trying to make grounds that, that the judge is actually prejudiced against you. And here, his grounds that the judge was actually prejudiced against him was that Judge Kiyosun, who's a well-respected L.A. Supreme Court judge, uh, in case he's listening, and that it says that he's biased against him because Judge Kiyosun's biased against Mexican-Americans and pro-per litigants and is partial to the county of Los Angeles. And apparently that's all he said. So there was no there was no basis, no grounds, nothing like that. He just made that that fundamental statement, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in those cases, the judge can ask another judge um, to take this on without consenting to or conceding disqualification or uh, actually file a consent or file a written verified answer uh, or um, basically deny it on the ground, deny the allegations or deny it on the grounds that it's untimely on its face and there's no legal grounds. Yeah. And, that's and just for good measure here, it was also untimely, too. Just consistent with everything else this pro per litigant did, the the that statement of disqualification was also untimely. So the judge threw it out, and the court of appeals says, "Yeah, we don't see a legal basis for uh, disqualification here. It's not even articulated, so there's no reason for him to not strike it for the trial judge." There were other grounds that he raised in his appeal as well, um, including the fact that he didn't think, I guess, that punitive damages should have been struck and struck struck it. Stricken, 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 stricken. stricken. Don't you. make up words. Yeah. Uh, and you can't have punitive damages against the public entity. So um, I, I thought that, you know. The oh, and then there's also the issue about the subpoena for medical records. He says the uh, the court should have quashed the subpoena for medical records, but he's making a claim for physical injury and emotional distress. And they say when you put that at issue, you're, you're, you're putting your medical records out there that are entitled to get it. So that was fine, too. So the whole thing is just thrown out. The whole thing is thrown out. And that's a great way to end our um, podcast because uh, as just like that case, our podcast is now being thrown out. It should be. Yeah. No, no. People, people like us and we've been pumping out a lot of episodes and trying to make it exciting. Recently broken through into double digit listeners. I'm very excited about that. We've got at least 10 people who are listening to us now. That's ambitious. I don't know about that. That's ambitious. But, but, you know, hope springs eternal. So thank you all very much for listening to Civil Action with Brian Kavitek and Sean Karnicki and Sean. Yep. You can find us at kbklawyers.com. Check us out. Let us know if you have any questions, if you have any ideas for what we should cover. If you want to hear us interview someone in particular, you know, we're always listening. So thanks for tuning in and see you next time.